0: Hey there, listener. Thanks for stopping by. Before we get the podcast started today, I just wanted to tell you about my Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and donating some money, all you got to do is go to patreon.com forward slash K-I-P-P-O-D. And there's three separate tiers there where you can get exclusive content, ad-free content, and you can even suggest questions for me to ask future guests on the podcast. So guys, make sure to check out my Patreon. Also, make sure to share this podcast on your social media accounts, link it to Spotify, review it on Apple. I would very much appreciate that. So thanks, guys, and enjoy the episode.
1: Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade.
0: Hello and welcome to the Knowledge is Power podcast. I'm your host, Max Willett, and today we have a little bit of a different guest. Most of the time, I have business owners and I have—I had one YouTuber on, which is pretty cool. But today, I have a local
1: politician
0: and lawyer on today, uh, Blake Philippi. So if you want to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, that'd be great.
1: Hi, I'm Blake Philippi. Nice to meet you.
0: Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so... Blake took time out of his busy day to come in on the podcast today. So, uh, as I understand you, you're local representative, District 36, right? Yes, sir. And you've been doing that since 2014.
1: Yes, elected in 2014.
0: Okay, and then you also have a law degree, correct? So before we get into the politics, I'd love to talk a little bit about you know your law degree and where you got it.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, Rutgers University, uh, the State School of New Jersey, graduated in 2007.
0: Very cool, and you got it's a JD or yes, juris doctorate. Okay, is what it stands for. Can you it's tell JD. me? Can you tell me a little bit about that? About a, J, about yeah, about a, JD. a JD? Yeah, about um, JD. Yeah.
1: So essentially, it's a, a doctorate of law. Don't call me a doctor. <laughs> um, yeah. So having a law degree is fascinating. You really learn how all the pieces fit together and move. And, you know, you kind of have an idea of the way our constitutional republic works. But when you actually get into the nitty-gritty and read Supreme Court cases and understand uh, how jurisprudence has developed over the past 250 years, uh, you understand our country much better.
0: Yeah, very cool. So what made you want to get a a law degree?
1: I've always been interested in it. Ever since I was a little kid, I would watch Perry Mason. And um, I've always just been fascinating in the law. Um, It's one of those things that... You know, you the name of your podcast is Knowledge is Power. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that it being a lawyer, it's uh, powerful. And you can be a force for good with it or a force for, for bad. And I think we need people who are good people to become lawyers. And um it's really just a wonderful profession. It's a stressful profession. Mm-hmm. But you sometimes help people when they're in their darkest moments. You're there as kind of a rock, and that makes it worth it.
0: So what what sort of um, cases do you take usually?
1: So I started out, I interned or clerked in the Rhode Island Supreme Court Clerk Department, and that's essentially where uh, you service trial-level judges. So I would sit with uh, judges who are in trials and do legal research and writing for them. So I kind of got a broad overview about the practice of law. Um, you know, we have a chessboard sitting in front of us and law Mm -hmm. school kind of teaches you how each piece moves. Practicing law and working in a court or working at a law firm kind of teaches you the strategy behind those pieces. Yeah. So working in the court, I felt like I understood much more like how the practice of law works and what you need to do to be an effective advocate. And so then I got out of that, that's a year position, and I just Mm -hmm. started taking on cases. I took on criminal law cases, tort cases like personal injury. did Rob Levine, personal injury. Yeah, oh, I, the, the, the same industry, yeah, the, the same industry. It, yeah. I, I didn't have any fancy jingles on TV yeah. or anything. Um, and then I, I actually got into property law and like real estate law, and I kind of took an affinity to that mm-hmm. because property law is one of those things where it's very mathematical, and if you can you know make the numbers add up, you know that spells victory sometimes. Yeah, and I, I kind of like that because I like research. I really really like digging in. And, you know, I probably have lead poisoning from going through old records from when they had lead (laughs) lead pencils in the state. Yeah. Um, Cases you have to find in the old court records from the 1700s sometimes, Uh, old town council records you can dig into and find what you need to determine who has an interest in some piece of property that maybe was forgotten to time. Yeah. Uh, So I like to research and I find with the type of property law I do, there's a lot of that like really nitty gritty deep research, which I like.
0: Very cool. So, um, yeah, I guess it's time to get into the, the politics career, which sure. I, I, have, I have a lot of questions for that.
1: Okay, I'll try and be as open as a book as I possibly can.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, first question is, what made you want to get into politics?
1: So, wow. So, I was always, like, well, kind of fascinating in pol- fascinated in politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people think, you know, politics has a negative ring to it, like, we don't want politics infecting things. And, you know, politics is people who are elected uh, by their communities to stand up for them and, mm-hmm. and advocate for their interests. So I think politics is, is a noble profession um, when done right. And what made me want to get into it is that I, in 2012, I got a job working for this organization called the Tenth Amendment Center. And at the time, we were working against the 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, And that was a federal law that purported to authorize the president to indefinitely detain U.S. citizens domestically um, who are suspected of terrorism. Uh, No due process, no trial. uh, Also allowed them to be tried in military tribunals and also allowed what's called extraordinary rendition, which is the practice of transferring people from one jurisdiction to another. Essentially taking U.S. citizens and bringing them outside of the United States uh, jurisdiction of courts so they don't have to give them due process. Mm-hmm. And I think that was Section 1031 of the National Defense Authorization Act. Don't quote me on it. Um, and so we kind of felt that the way to stand up for citizens is to use the power of the states to push back on a federal government that passed on constitutional laws. And we kind of saw what happened during the, the pre-Civil War years um, with the what's called the Fugitive Slave Acts, and the Fugitive Slave Acts were federal laws that essentially allowed uh, federal marshals to go into free states in the north, uh, capture escaped slaves, and bring them back to bondage in the south. And what a lot of states did, included, including Rhode Island, they passed what were called personal liberty laws, which uh, the, where the state said that no state officers can aid a federal agent uh, capturing an escaped slave and send them back to bondage, uh, no state jails, no... Uh, resources whatsoever of state government or local government can be used to aid the federal government in enforcing what is clearly now unconstitutional law. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them sought to not only deny access to state assets, but also sought to interpose and prevent federal uh, agents from capturing escaped slaves. And Rhode Island had one, Massachusetts had a really good one. So we saw this historical precedent and this doctrine of nullification Uh, where states don't have to aid a federal government in enforcement of federal regulatory policies. Um, That's been upheld by the United States Supreme Court a bunch of times. It's called the anti-commandeering doctrine. Essentially, even if something is constitutional that the federal government does, they can't force a sovereign state to aid in its implementation. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a long-winded way to say that we can use states to push back against a federal government that's doing the wrong thing. And so when we worked for the 10th Amendment Center, we sought to have states uh, pass d- modern personal liberty laws as it applies to the National Defense Authorization Act, saying the states won't aid. And there was a good amount of a success. Uh, I think nine states passed it, the uh, law that we were working on, to say that we're not gonna aid the federal government. And so you know, after doing that for a couple of years, I said to myself, maybe the best way to protect people's liberties and rights is, you know, working at the state level uh, to push back against state and federal policies that may infringe upon fundamental human rights. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into it. That's a very long winded explanation. No, no, that's
0: great. That's great. Um, That's a good answer, too. I really like that answer. Um, So I don't know, you know, so I would like to hear like you to describe your, you know, where you stand in terms of your political beliefs, like. How would you describe it in you know a short sentence of what you believe in?
1: It's it's tough because I think when we when we think of politics, we think you know this linear political spectrum where you have yeah. left, right, moderate, and I really think it's more of a three dimensional blob, and you know your views fall somewhere within that blob. Okay. Um, for me, I, I guess if you want to label me, it's more libertarian, but you know I. I I'm very skeptical of a government that wants to get involved in your wallet or your home. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the duty of government is to preserve—the primary duty of government is to preserve individual liberty. And um, that puts me on the right with some issues, and it also puts me on the left with some issues. Mm-hmm. Um I'll give you one on the left. Uh, drug policy. I have more of a what people would perceive as a liberal view of drug policy, mm-hmm. um, specifically with marijuana. For a long time, I've advocated for, even before it became legal for medical purposes, was legalizing it for medical purposes, saying that the federal government doesn't have the constitutional authority to stop someone dying of cancer from smoking a plant. Um, and that's kind of been my philosophy with individual choices. Um, maybe I'll be more on the right when it comes to tax policy. Uh, I'm skeptical of government, uh, taking too much money from people. Cause if you think about it, if you have to work, you know, an extra 20% to pay your taxes, how much of your time is that? How much of your time that you could be spending thing, time with your family or doing things you love? Uh, instead of doing that, you know, you're working to pay taxes. I mean, taxes are necessary, but we have to understand where they come from. and they No come-
0: taxation without representation.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, we all have representation, but okay, so you could suppose you have taxation with representation, yep. but the taxation is such that you have to work so much to pay it. At what point? Um, you, we have to pay taxes, right? Mm-hmm. But we have to understand where they come from, and that is the time and efforts of a free citizenry.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so in, in 2014, you ran for your first term, uh, for a representative in 36th District. Yes. Um, so is it because of your libertarian beliefs you wanted to run as an independent and, and not a Republican?
1: Totally. So yeah. I, I actually had been a Republican for a long time within the libertarian sect of, of Republicanism. Yeah. And um, I had gone in 2012 down to the Republican National Convention with the Ron Paul delegation. And I was frankly disgusted at the Republican Party when I went down there. Uh, they were not open to ideas that were contrary to popular dogma at the time uh, the The libertarian wing of the Republican Party was very youth oriented, very e- energetic at the time. And I felt that there was like an old guard of Republicans who just looked at us like annoyances and really treated us terribly. So at that point i said listen i'm not I'm not interested in in being a member of this party anymore." And so I unaffiliated and became an independent and then ran as independent and, and won. And then when I got up to the state house, it became re- readily apparent to me that the state Republican party is the party of good government in Rhode Island. You know, you have your national Republican party, which I wasn't happy with, but the state party here really are the ones who are the loyal opposition, who you know speak truth to power every day. And that doesn't happen enough in this state. You know, we're willing to take on the establishment when they do the wrong thing. And many of my Democratic colleagues aren't because they're part of this machine that they can't go against. And so I've kind of always been a nonconformist. And after serving up there, I said to myself, this this state Republican Party fits more within my views. And there's a home for my libertarian views in, the, in this state party.
0: Yeah, very cool. So I don't know how long. So when you ran in 2014, how long was a, a Democrat in District 36 for?
1: I believe eight years.
0: Okay, and then before that was a Republican?
1: No, no. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant the, the okay. incumbent Democrat. No, yeah. I, I think it had been a, a Democrat for a long time. Yeah. Um, so, no, I, I I don't recall the last time a, a Republican represented the 36th district.
0: Okay. So, why do you think um, you were elected uh, into this district with your, quote-unquote, right-leaning views?
1: Because, yeah, quote-unquote, right-leaning views. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, I think— I think most people are libertarian, but they just don't know it yet. Yeah, yeah yeah. And uh, you know I speak to a lot of people and most of them say, yeah, I agree with you on on most issues. I, I don't want the government in my private life, but I also you know want to be able to, to acquire wealth and be successful and, and have a, a prosperous family. And, and they also believe in individual rights. And Those were the issues really focused on and they also hate corporate welfare and that was a big issue Um, And it still is in this state. I hate giving taxpayer money away to rich companies to get them to invest here Um, I I think it's fraught with problems and it's a race to the bottom and that was something that took center stage in the 2014 campaign was our notion of economic development in this state and how unfair it is to the people when they're taxed So rich connected insiders can get their money Mm -hmm. Um, And that was something that I felt really resonated
0: yeah, I'm um, very cool. I mean, uh, so I have some some quotes here from your 2014 campaign. Um, I don't know if you said <laughs> if you said them, but there it's. I think well, they campaign, were on my website. Yeah. I said them. Well, like well, like <laughs> I think they they were saying like, um, you know, this is what you believe in. Okay, sort of thing. So where did you get them from? I just want um, to. Oh my gosh, it's like political blog or something i don't know like okay I gotcha yeah. so okay.
1: yeah say, read it and i'll tell you whether it's accurate or not
0: politics is a calling not a profession
1: yes uh i believe you get into it to serve yeah and if you're not getting into it to serve you you shouldn't run for office and i'm skeptical about people who have made a career out of politics <laughs> i think ambition in politics is something we should all be wary of
0: Mm-hmm. That, yeah, very cool. So, I'm trying not to say my opinion. I'm just asking <laughs> questions. <laughs> um, so, the second quote I have here is: "Government should focus on building a strong business climate rather than trying to manage the economy." Totally. So, uh, would you like to expand on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. It almost comes back to the corporate welfare comment I made a couple minutes ago. Um, we have a government in this state that sees itself as the engineer of economic development, and I think if you have any like historical perspective that's pure folly, the, the role of government in, in a capitalist and free market society is to, to set conditions that allow organic investment and growth. Um, I don't believe that government has the ability or, frankly, the, the, the charge to be the engineer of economic development. And I think that's something that we we have to fight against in this state. Because if we don't, we're going to continue to bleed to other states that actually endorse uh, free market principles.
0: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, so here's an I have a third quote here. So we must reverse the trend of state government absorbing our decision making and empower local communities and individuals.
1: Sure. So we're a state of 39 cities and towns, and, and we take that seriously. And there's been a drive uh, at the state to usurp local planning and zoning. Uh, every year, there's some new bill that undermines local uh, planning and zoning that undermines local sovereignty. And so I've uh, I've fought against those Uh, Every year I've been up there. I believe that state has a role and municipalities have a role and they need to be clearly defined and not bleed into each other. Mm -hmm. And I want to preserve the ability of our our beautiful communities to continue to plan because they've done a great job. I don't want the state telling us how we need to develop or not develop.
0: Yeah, great. So and that one last quote I have. So and this was an interesting one. It says you say uh, or it says on. Uh, protecting the privacy and health of citizens must be a government priority. And I was curious what you meant by by health of citizens.
1: Sure. So there was a a really interesting issue in 2014 when I was running, and that related to a quarry in Westerly, on the border of Westerly and Charlestown, Mm -hmm. called Copar Quarry. And they were doing dry crushing of granite. And dry crushing of granite is very dangerous because it releases airborne particles of crystalline silica. And crystalline silica acts similar to asbestos. And they were in the middle of a residential neighborhood. And this stuff was spewing out and covering cars, getting kids, people were breathing in, people were getting sick. And I saw that as an abject failure of government um, on the state level mm-hmm. because the State Department of Environmental Management is charged with regulating emissions from businesses and they were failing. And uh, this quarry was getting people sick. And so we, uh, the first year we were up there, we passed a, a law um, about the airborne emissions uh, from quarrying. And we were able to shut this bad actor down um, at the Co-Park quarry. So that's what I was referring to, like government has a role okay. of protecting the health of citizens. yeah, yeah, and that, not, yeah. not managing their personal yeah. healthcare decisions, okay. yeah. but more about if, if if there's a bad actor in an industry which is getting people sick, that that's a primary role of government. You okay. can't hurt other people.
0: All right, very cool. Is that is that the quarry like right across from the football field in Westerly? No,
1: no, no, you're you're thinking that one's over in White Rock. This yeah. one, this one's uh, like really kind of hidden off Church Street in uh, in Westerly by mm-hmm. the Brad Bradford Elementary.
0: Oh, okay. Oh. They're not in business anymore, are they?
1: So the there was an operator called Armeta out of Connecticut that was yep. running it and running it in that bad way, yep. and they shut down operations. Mm-hmm. There's a family that still owns the quarry, and they're doing limited operations. They're not mm-hmm. doing the dry crushing of granite anymore. You know, they have a right to be an operator. They have a, a property right to their quarry, mm-hmm. and they just have to do it in a way that doesn't hurt people, and they've done a much better job.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I recently I heard that there was an issue with the one over on 91. Too. I've um, I've heard
1: that too. Yeah. And and, and the and my understanding is DEM is using the law we passed to make sure there are no harmful emissions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know. And but now if they're if they're taking action which which constitutes a nuisance, you know, which is harming neighbors, um, whether that's the peace of their houses, whether it's noise or blast um, reverberations from blasting. You know, neighbors have private rights to go to court and try and stop that mm-hmm. but state government's role really is is health and safety yeah and that's what we focused on
0: very cool so I was I, I was uh, watching something from channel 12 I believe it was and you were talking about a merger between uh, lifespan and care New England yeah and I feel like this is one of those things that sort of gets tucked under the rug and not a lot of people know what's going on with it but it can affect their lives a, a lot. So I was wondering if you'd like to talk about that a little bit.
1: This is a generational issue. It's probably the biggest issue in our state mm-hmm. <clears throat> right now, and we need, to, we need to get on it. So here's what happens. You have Care New England, which owns several hospitals in the state, um, including women and infants. You have Lifespan, which owns several hospitals in the state, including Rhode Island Hospital. Care New England has had financial problems for a while. One of the largest, best hospital groups in the world, Partners Healthcare, out of Boston, where people from Saudi Arabia get on their private jet and fly there to get checkups. Mm -hmm. It's Brigham and Women's. It's Mass General. Uh, They sought to come in and buy one of our struggling hospital groups, Care New England. Uh, Governor Raimondo and her friends at Brown University killed that deal. Um, Basically, Lifespan, our largest hospital group, didn't want competition from this out-of-state entity. And that out-of-state entity is affiliated with Harvard University. And Brown University didn't want Harvard coming down here. So they had Governor Raimondo kill that acquisition. Now, that acquisition would have been good for the people of the state, in my opinion, because it would have brought needed competition, Uh, would have brought the best medical group in the world into Rhode Island. Um, And I'll give you a little vignette. I had my appendix out when I was 15. One of my buddies in college had his appendix out when he was 15. Mine was done in Providence. His was done in Boston. I have an enormous gash across my stomach as a scar. He has three little dots because they had laparoscopic surgery years before we had it here. So there's a difference in medical care. We can't deny it. We all talk about how if something's really bad with you, you need to go to Boston. Mm -hmm.
0: Hey there. Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I just want to take this chance to tell you to share the podcast on your social media platforms, link it on your Instagram story, follow knowledge is power underscore Rhode Island on Instagram, and leave a review on Apple podcast if you're listening on that platform. So thanks for listening, guys, and enjoy the rest of the episode.
1: Boston wanted to come here and we, not we, our government uh, protected insiders in this state from competition that would have benefited the people of the state. So Governor Raimondo kills the acquisition of Care New England by partners, and then partners enters into negotiations with Lifespan uh, to form a new entity, with Lifespan and Brown. If that new entity uh, is uh, happens, uh, that will control 80% of healthcare delivery in the state. And it will also control over 80% of primary care providers in this state primary care providers in this state will be required to refer within the Lifespan Network. So that's going to hurt our hospitals down here. That's going to hurt South County Hospital. It's going to hurt Westerly Hospital. It's going to financially put them in a state where they might not survive unless they, guess what, sell out to the conglomerate, this Care New England Brown Lifespan conglomerate. Uh, I'm very skeptical of allowing um one healthcare provider that's state regulated to control eighty percent of market share. I think it's dangerous. It's going to lead to worse healthcare outcomes for us. It's going to hurt employees, uh, and it's going to drive some of our most talented doctors and nurses out of state to Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, where they where they get paid more now. If partners had come down here, they would have raised the bar not just in delivery of medical care, but in terms of what we pay uh, nurses, orderlies, and doctors. That would have brought a whole new level of health care to this state. Um, but a bunch of insiders didn't want the competition, and they used the force of government to scare it away. And now they're using the force of government to permit um, a monopoly, a ver- veritable monopoly in the delivery of health care. So right now there's a pending application in front of the Federal Trade Commission. And my understanding is the Federal Trade Commission is skeptical of that. They've gone into states and said that 60% of market share is too much in the delivery of health care. Uh, So we think it might get turned down by the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, There's also a review by our attorney general under what's called the Hospital Conversion Act. And he has to confirm, this is Attorney General Narona, that this merger would be in the best interests of the people of this state. Uh, I don't know how he can do that, frankly, with what's going on. I, I believe in our attorney general. I think he's a good man, and I hope that he makes the right decision here and says, no, I can't allow this merger to happen. Now, if either the FTC or... excuse me, the Attorney General turned down this merger, that's not the end because uh, the state can pass what's called a COPA, uh, Certification of Public Accommodation, I believe. And that would be able to bypass the FTC, the Federal Trade uh, Commission, and the Attorney General and legislatively authorize this uh, monopoly. And so that may be a really big fight we have on the horizon and people in the state need to see what's going on here and need to see that uh, this insider game this hook up our buddies and prevent competition from out-of-state entities this this Rhode Island thing we have sometimes is being used with their and their family's health care it's insidious it's wrong and we need to be better than that
0: so what what can like just the average person do to to help bring that issue to light then
1: talk about it Facebook about it, tweet about it, Instagram, TikTok, whatever you want. However you communicate to people, let them know that this is going on Mm -hmm. uh, because it's not getting talked about enough. And if for some reason the FTC turns it down or for some reason the attorney general turns it on, turns it down, excuse me, know that your elected representatives are going to have to vote to bypass those declinations. And this will be in front of the General Assembly and people need to get active and let their representatives and senators know that it's Unacceptable to have a monopoly in the delivery of health care in this state. It's going to hurt people. It's going to it's going to hurt people Physically yeah hurt people
0: so is is, is there people on the other side of the aisle that? Um, that believe in that this should go through or is there is this or is this a bipartisan issue you think
1: so? I mean <laughs> From my perspective, most Republicans that I've dealt with are opposed to it. Where we're seeing an interesting alliance, I think, is between many of my progressive friends uh, in the House and Senate. Uh, they're also skeptical of having this monopoly. So you're seeing a um, really interesting alliance, I think, between Republicans and, and people on the perceived hard left, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, where do our moderate friends stand? Um, unfortunately, many of our moderate friends don't take positions on issues. Uh, They Hmm. wait until, you know, they're green-lighted by leadership to speak out on issues. Um, I think that's unacceptable. Um, I think it's one of the problems with one-party dominance in this state is that people who are part of the machine can't speak their mind, and you're seeing it on this issue. Uh, I think every rep and senator should be researching this issue and and taking a position on it because it's real, it's happening, and um, once it happens, it's going to last for generations.
0: Yeah, I mean— What's the point of being a representative if you don't, you know, take, you know, sides on an issue, you know, like it do nothing about it,
1: right? I mean, so, many of them rationalize it. Yeah. You know, max many of them rationalize it and say, you know, I have these these issues I care about mm-hmm. and if I don't play along, I'm not going to get the little league field built or I'm not going to get a $5,000 check for as a legislative grant to bring home. Um well, the Biggest thing we lack in state government is courage. That's what, that, that's what I've learned. You know, before I got up there, I was like, All right, brown bags everywhere, brown bags. You know, there's payoffs going on. That's, that's the only rational explanation mm-hmm. for why things happen the way they happen. And then when I got up there, it, it's actually far more fascinating. It's far more interesting of a view into human nature. Um, and it's that people are scared to speak out. People are scared to go against the grain. You know, if, you know that fable, The King's New Clothes, you know, where the king had the invisible clothes and everyone, then they said only people who were wise could you know, see the king's clothes, and so the king's walking through uh, downtown naked, and all the people on the parade route are saying, look at those beautiful clothes, look at those beautiful clothes, and then some little kid finally said, the king's naked. Um, if someone had gone and bribed all the people on the parade route to say the king was wearing clothes, it would make more sense. But really what that fable tells us is that like people sometimes are afraid to speak out. People are afraid to go against the grain and that's the story of Rhode Island government.
0: Wow. Okay. Not going to say my opinion. Just going to nod my head and say that's pretty cool. (laughs)
1: Pretty cool (laughs) or pretty awful? Well, like that's like a
0: pretty cool (laughs) statement, you know, like very good comparison is what I meant. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, uh, I have uh, some more questions about local government. Um, so, Rhode Island has the tenth highest property tax in the United States, um, and I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. I don't, and you said you practice property law, right? Mm-hmm. So, why why are we number ten in the in the in the country?
1: So it, that's not as much of a legal analysis; it is a policy analysis, okay. right? You know, you you look at that. And then a lot of those states that have a higher property tax than us don't have income taxes. So you can't look at it in a vacuum and say, we have the the 10th highest property tax rate in the country. You have to look at overall tax burden, Mm -hmm. which we are high. Okay. Right. So like, uh, I think New Hampshire probably has a higher property tax than us, right? But no no income tax, no sales tax. Mm -hmm. So- I think when you look at our overall tax burden, we're clearly higher than Massachusetts, uh, clearly higher than New Hampshire. Um, so, if you want to look at property taxes in a vacuum, um, we have 39 cities and towns with many duplicated efforts. Now, I'm I'm into the local sovereignty, but we have to acknowledge that when you have a bunch of towns, th- you know, buying dump trucks when maybe five towns would only need one. And there's 39 town clerks when maybe we could get everything done with 10 town clerks. Or there's you know 36 school districts because you know there's merged school districts, uh, and you have 36 superintendents. And it's about the it's smaller than New York City school district that has one superintendent. There are inefficiencies mm-hmm. in in the delivery of services, and that's one of the reasons we have high property taxes. Now I mean we're lucky in some of our communities to not suffer a big burden with property taxes uh, charlestown has a, a great property tax rate uh, largely because there's a bunch of houses south of route one that pay property taxes but don't have kids in the school system mm-hmm. um, overall our tax burden i i, I think we're worse than 10th you know we have the 10th highest property taxes but when you add all the other taxes we pay you know we have a higher sales tax than massachusetts which is just stupid which is so stupid because if you drive into Seekonk and you're driving to North Attleboro, what do you see? You see a a toilet bowl ring of big stores having Rhode Islanders buy expensive items there. I think Massachusetts is 6.25% and we're seven. Mm -hmm. Um, So our overall tax burden in the state is high and property taxes are just kind of one element of that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So I have a question. So Obviously, I have a small business, 3D printing. I talked about that before in the podcast, and I and I do. I have a retail website, and I have to apply for a retail sales license. And and negli- neg- negligence is never an excuse for something when it comes to business and taxes and everything like that. But I mean, last year I you know did nothing in sales, right? only a few thousand you know nothing you know I was running the business out of my parents basement and still trying to build it and I got a I don't know I got an email or a call I can't remember saying that the state was gonna take my sales license away and basically shut down my business because I didn't pay the ten dollars because I forgot about it why was the state gonna take that away from me over ten dollars like why does that happen in Rhode Island
1: um and that's your annual sales tax permit renewal. Yeah, right? it's
0: nothing crazy. I'm not complaining about the amount. Totally. But from the state side, $10 really? Like you're going to shut my business down because of that?
1: $10? So, listen, like we all have to pay our taxes, right? Yeah, of course. And we all have to renew our sales tax permits. Mm-hmm. I have several of them. Mm-hmm. We all have to pay our sales tax every month or quarterly. Mm-hmm. I have to do that, mm-hmm. right? And if someone isn't playing by the rules, you know there needs to be consequences. Yeah. How That's conveyed says a lot, Mm -hmm. right? If they're immediately their first, their first in the first instance, what they do is call you up and threaten you. You know, a young guy who started a business, that's not right, right? They should explain to you, I think in a way that doesn't make you feel like a cog in the wheel that, listen, you know, you're, out, you're outstanding on this and we got to get it brought up. If, if they had delivered that message to you in a different manner but delivered the same message, would mm-hmm. you feel differently?
0: Of course, of course, because it's 10 bucks.
1: It's 10 bucks, it's nothing. And yeah. you know you had to pay it, but if the, the first instance is a threat, I, I don't think that's how government should operate. Mm-hmm. I think government should be a partner, not a daddy, mm-hmm. scolding us when we step out of line.
0: Yeah, and I mean I had months last year where I did 0 dollars in sales. Totally. You know, they're not making a killing off of my sales tax every month. So it it just kind of set me back and, you know, maybe want to move out of the state eventually. So, and I really like Southern Rhode Island. I think it's a hidden gem in New England. It's a very nice place, you know, Richmond, Charlestown, Hopkinton, South Kingstown, beautiful area. I love this this area of Rhode Island. Um and I, you know, I say I'd want to move, but I mean Do I? I don't know. But it's a really nice area, and I'd like to stay here as long as I can.
1: Me too. Yeah. Me too. The state is a beautiful state, Mm -hmm. and it's worth fighting for. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, my my dad's family is not from here, but my mother's family is. um, On my grandma's side, Italian immigrants moved here. I'm not exactly sure of my grandfather's side. I know they're Scottish, but I don't know how long they've been in the United States for. But my grandmother was second generation, so that makes me like fourth, I guess. But and I'm only thirty five percent Italian, so I guess I'm not that Italian. But close enough. Yeah. Um, but I do love the Italian heritage. <laughs> I love Italian food. So
1: <laughs> yeah, right. You don't have to be Italian to love Italian. Yes. Food.
0: Yeah. But um, but yeah, just backtracking, you know, it just kind of set me back a little bit, and that kind of leads me into my next question: Is what are you doing and pushing to help small business prosper in Rhode
1: Island? Wow. So uh, you're talking about economic development, yeah. right? And you have, let's acknowledge that small businesses are the backbone of our economy. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are, I think they employ about 80% of jobs in the state of small business. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to make our business climate better, it's holistic. And there's a lot of things that have to happen, right? So if you are a company that's looking to open up a business in Rhode Island, we have energy prices which are drastically higher than other states there's a manufacturer in westerly um i'm not going to say their name and i sat down with the owner and she told me that if she would just close up shop and move to texas she would make six hundred thousand dollars more a year just by energy cost savings right six hundred grand a year in her pocket Mm -hmm. because that's how much we're paying more for electricity here that's one issue right we have to get our energy costs under control Another issue when you have someone looking to open up businesses here, one of the big things they look at is our schools. They look at our schools and say, is this a place where my employees would want to send their children? Now, we have some great school districts in this Charoles, state. Cherokees really. Cherokees are awesome. Place, yeah. Awesome. It's yep. a model. But we have many f- school districts in this state that are failing children. Mm-hmm. They're failing children. and we have to wrap our hands around our education system in this state it is the it is the foundational thing that affects all things and specifically to this conversation it affects economic development Uh, not just because people might not want to move businesses here but we need to develop a critically thinking workforce that's capable of starting businesses working jobs and for many children in this state that's not happening and that is the critical, not only social and civil rights issue, it's the critical economic development issue. Uh, I'll move on. Um, we spoke earlier about that government should not try and manage the economy. We have an economic development philosophy in this state where we take money out of people's pockets and we hand it to connected insiders. It happens all the time. There's thousands of examples. Um, we give $30 million a year away in taxpayer money to movies, to the, we have a thing called the film tax credit where a bunch of out-of-staters come here and film a movie and we give them money and then they take that money and leave the state. We're not creating sustainable long-term jobs with it. A lot of out-of-state people make that money. We're filming Hocus Pocus right now in this state. Um, it seems like our economic development strategy is Hocus Pocus because <laughs> these people are going to take our money and they're going to bounce. Um, we give tons of money in, in tax relief to big, big corporations that are here. I think CVS gets something like $8 million in taxpayer money a year. One of the biggest corporations in the world has its headquarters here and we give them our cash. Um, many people in our state government believe in central planning and whom benefits from central planning are connected people. And a lot of businesses see that and say, I don't want to play in that game. I don't want to have to hire uh, the right lobbyists. I don't want to have to play this stupid game to get handouts. And if I'm unable to get a handout, I have a competitive disadvantage against my competition. So what do they do? They choose to invest their money elsewhere in mm-hmm. other states. And as we become, become more and more of a mobile society, um, it's e- I, have, I, I can move my business to Texas and not even change my bank accounts. I mm-hmm. got the same... Like Bank of America, you got that here in Rhode Island, and you've got that in Texas. Like We are an incredibly mobile society, especially with everything that's happened in the past year and a half with Zoom and all the abilities to meet without even being in an office. Uh, People are voting with their feet more and more, and they were doing it before COVID, but they're doing it more and more, and they're voting with their feet to go to states that don't have this method of looking at government and economic development like Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. They are. They're moving to Texas and Florida right now. There's a massive exodus of capital and um, our best and brightest and our seniors with their money and contacts and um, mentorship. They're moving out of state and, and we're worse for it. So I, you want to get on the topic of economic development and it's holistic. And there's a lot of things we have to look at. But I'll I'll stick with schools, central planning, um, and tax policy. Mm-hmm. We have a high tax burden. People don't want to open up businesses where we have a high tax burden and also our energy costs are skyrocketing.
0: Well, I did have somebody on from Sweden yesterday on the podcast. And he actually, the first person I met who has had a business in Sweden, you know, in Europe, and the United States. Um, really cool guy. I think you should listen to that podcast. But I, I I do appreciate, you know, the United States because of how much he told me the taxes were in Sweden. I was, totally. yeah, it's like, what costs him a hundred thousand? You know, if somebody was going to get paid a hundred thousand dollars, he used as an example, um, that person would get fifty grand, and then the employer would have to pay the government another fifty grand in taxes. So it costs the employer a hundred fifty grand for a hundred thousand dollar a year employee, mm-hmm. and then that guy doesn't even get his hundred grand; it goes down to fifty, like
1: because they're paying fifty percent taxes in, in too. taxes.
0: Yeah, so like. Like what robbery is that?
1: I mean, you that's know? like tough. that's
0: crazy. That's crazy. And that does make me appreciate Rhode Island
1: tax system a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but largely we're not competing against Sweden. We're competing yeah, against exactly. other, states other states that have much better yeah. tax policies than us. Yeah. Um, and also say I've been to Sweden and y- you know I don't mind paying taxes. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a, we got to do it. I mind when my tax money is squandered. Yeah. And we do a lot of squandering. In this state and frankly, in the country, we do a lot of squandering with our tax money, and then we don't even talk about the hidden tax of inflation because they're printing and printing and printing more money, and it makes every dollar in your pocket worth less. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it happening now. I think I checked the inflation rate um a couple of days ago, and it was about five and a half percent over the year
0: well wasn't it wasn't like some stupid, high percentage of all the money in circulation printed in the last two years trillions yeah,
1: totally, yeah. We, we, we don't have real money in this country. We, we just don't. We have a printing press. And if you think of dollars as commodities, um, you print more dollars. Every dollar in your pocket is worth less, and that's inflation. And who does inflation benefit? Inflation benefits connected people, again, who are first in line. So that new money's printed. Um, connected people get it through the Federal Reserve System and through government bonds and through government works projects. And they get that money before inflation is actually realized and trickles down and the price of everything goes up. So the Mm -hmm. new money is gotten by people who are in the game and that money is used by them before inflation is realized by the people. And then when that money further trickles down into the economy, the price of everything goes up. Um, You guys know what it's like at the grocery store right now? And and that's a result of our failed national monetary policy, yeah. our expansionist, debt-ridden monetary policy. And both parties are responsible for it. Republicans are no different than Democrats.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: Um, you think of you know when the Democrats in power, the Republicans scream and yell about the national debt and our deficits, and you know we have to get this monster under control. And then as soon as Republicans take power in Washington, they just do the same thing. It's a big game. And when the cameras go off, they all laugh and say, can you believe everyone's focused on these stupid social issues while we're screwing everyone Mm -hmm. with monetary policy? Mm -hmm. It's the big game. They Mm -hmm. have us focus on all these things that don't matter. The things that really, really matter. Monetary policy, international relations, foreign policy. They're all on the same page with.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So, and
1: social issues are the distraction.
0: Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so, I just thought this question, and they just recently passed the infrastructure bill up in you know or down in Washington D.C. How is that bill going to affect Rhode Island in any
1: way? Like. Is, No, it's not going to affect us enough. Yeah, I mean, it's estimated we're going to get $2.5 billion for infrastructure. I mean, we'll take the money. I don't like the printing press, but if it's going to print, the money should come to Rhode Island. And you think it's great, and okay, that's a lot of money. But then you start doing a little math in your head, and you say, okay, what is it, $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill? And then you realize that we have a million people in this state, but we have uh, 150th of the Senate with Jack Reed and Sheldon Whitehouse. So we are, we represent 1 360th of the United States population, about 360 million people. It's estimated now we have about a million people, mm-hmm. but we have 1 50th of the Senate. Why are they not blowing cash all over this state every year? You know, we get some crumbs, but we're not getting enough. Uh, we have, I think Senator Reed and Whitehouse have an obligation to leverage their outsized per capita power to benefit the people of this state. We should not be in financial crises. We should not have potholes. We should have so much federal money raining down on this state every single year and not be thankful for the crumbs that we get. And so until that printing press is broken, if it's gonna print, the money needs to come here and we need to hold our senators accountable. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're getting enough.
0: Hey there guys, quick break on this awesome episode Uh, If you have not shared this podcast Please share it, whether that's on social media Or just telling your friends and family about it That'd be great Um, Feel free to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts It would mean the world to me uh, so thank you, and let's get back to the conversation with Blake talking about Sheldon Whitehouse.
1: I think he's a nice guy, right? Yeah. Like We have a, a relationship. He's helped yeah. out a lot of constituents here. When I've reached out to his office, there's a time for campaigning and a time for governing, and mm-hmm. I found that interacting with his office has been good. But the big issue for our Senate delegation is that— why are you not leveraging your outsized influence on a per capita basis to bring an outsized amount of money here? Mm-hmm. We have the same senatorial representation as California, which has 56 million people. Yeah. The same representation in the Senate. Go use that. Yeah. Your state's suffering. Our state is suffering. Mm-hmm. And you have this federal largesse. We all know it exists. Why are they not bringing us back more bacon, mm-hmm. is my question. Mm
0: hmm. Interesting. Um, so next question. Um, so obviously there's a huge labor shortage. Is there anything being done at the state level to, to help combat that labor shortage in Rhode Island?
1: So there, there was a thing that we passed last year that allowed people who are on unemployment, because you were making more on unemployment than you were in most jobs during the pandemic. And there was a thing to allow people to continue to collect unemployment, but uh, allow them to work, I, I think, 20 hours a week. Um, I, I, the labor shortage, I think is, is a result of a lot of years of maybe not having a strongly developed economy, right? So if, if there's a a, a strong economy, there's competition for work, the workforce, it drives up wages, right? That's just, that's a natural consequence of a booming economy. Um, if you look at other States that have a minimum wage, excuse me. Other states that have a minimum wage, that have robust economies, very few people are paid minimum wage because businesses can't pay it because the workers demand more because there's demand for their services. In this state, we haven't had a really strong economy, so wages hadn't gone up for a long time. Um, So I I think we need to have a a stronger economy where people – you know, can demand higher wages. And I think like right now, people are demanding wages that many businesses can't pay. And I I don't know if we're at an inflection point with it. Um, I'm thinking a lot in the hospitality industry because that's my industry. Um, A lot of the numbers aren't working right now, not only for employees to go to work, but also for employers to be able to pay the wages that those employees demand. Uh, There was a Harvard and Brown study um, that said that 50% of small businesses in Rhode Island, small businesses in Rhode Island have closed or will close because of the pandemic. And that's going to shift a lot to big, big business. And I'm concerned about it because we are a small business state. So what do we do with the labor shortage, right? I I think we have to go back to the conversation we had on economic development. Um, We have to make it appealable for workers to stay here. And the way we're going to make it appealable for them to stay here is to have a robust economy where the market is able to pay them what they demand. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. So, and, and something that's concerning to me is that you see all these businesses having to pay more to get employees to stay or just to hire them in the first place. And I mean, if you just look at like basic economics, you know, if more employers have to pay their employees more then cost of goods is going to, is going to go up, you know, like at McDonald's or something. Um, and the guy I had on yesterday owns a restaurant and he has to pay more to get employees, you know, which is something that concerns me as well. But, um,
1: and you also have the the self checkouts, yeah. you know, businesses are going to adapt Yeah, and as robotics is really going to come into effect in the next decade, you know, Andrew Yang, I mean, he, I don't agree with his policies about the guaranteed guaranteed uh, living wage, even if you don't work, et cetera, but he's spot on to talk about the robotics revolution and mm-hmm. how, how are we going to continue when most things are going to be able to be done mechanically, except the service industries. But in terms of um, production, yeah, and, just look
0: at 3D printing.
1: Yeah, 3D printing here. Yeah, in the roughs, right. It's like robotics are going to revolutionize things, and what's going to happen to our industries? And if our industries go away, and many things are done with robotics, mm-hmm. how are people going to survive? Where are people going to go work? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have answers to these questions because they're profound, but in the next decade, we're going to face an, a serious economic issue where there's going to be not many jobs available mm-hmm. uh, because robots are going to be doing a lot of the things that we do today.
0: Yeah. I mean, just traditional prototyping has almost been erased by 3D printing because that those molds are traditionally made handmade, and there are companies that made handmade molds and things like that. Now a 3D printer can do it for ridiculously less than what it would cost a traditional prototyping company to do
1: it so you just design it in your computer and press exactly print. and that's the design you would have sent the prototyping company that would have had to sit there and
0: carve out the- mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so and then match it up with like a print you know they print it out on a piece of paper and like match it out and it, it it's it's crazy so
1: but that's hap- that's happening in so many industries of like, course if you just look at like the architectural industry it's the, there's
0: the ca- 3d printers that that build uh, buildings now houses yeah. yeah
1: I saw 3d a 3d printer some prototype in China where a guy like built a house in a day well they're doing it in printer. Mexico
0: and I think some parts of Texas for low-income housing really and um, it's it's nothing crazy like the thing about 3d printing is the technology has been around since the 1980s and really the technology has been around before that as long as there's been an electric motor plastic and aluminum you could have built a 3D printer. I mean, obviously the computing power has to be there, but the but the bare bones technology of 3D printing is really simple and that's where like concrete pours come into play. It's like literally just a concrete pour that pours a concrete in a shape. Totally. That's all it is. Sometimes they put a nozzle on it to make it more precise, but it's nothing crazy at all. You know, people think, you know, that, and it is really cool that 3D printing houses is really cool, but it's nothing that, you know is hard to understand it's really simple it's simple like slicing on a preloaded program you can download for free online send it to the printer and then you're good to go and it's it's a really simple process and really and really cool in my opinion and i've been around it now for a few years on hobbyist and industrial sides of it so
1: and if we think about that what that will do to our construction industry mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's right, so like the dislocation that we're going to face in all these industries by things going robotic and computerized. How do we, you know, how we have a country of 360 million people. What's going to be our unemployment? How, how do we respond to that?
0: Well, I actually wrote a, um, a blog on this. I used to work at a company in Quantic called R and D technologies and they do, and they do industrial 3d printing. So they have printers that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars compared to thousands, which is what I have. Um, and I compare. I, I I did some research and looked up a place in Dubai. They built an office building, and what usually would cost you know between one and a half two million dollars, they built it for seventy grand in Dubai. Oh and there were two guys that helped do the like machine and make sure everything was going good, and then like an electrician came in, and you know. They had like they and the guys that were building the place were putting the windows in as it was printing and things like that. It's just 70 grand compared to one and a half million dollars to build this building. Mm -hmm. And it took like less than 10 people, excuse me, by the end of it. Well, that's
1: revolutionary. So, how do we respond to it? I don't know, but that
0: seems like something you can't stop.
1: I know you can't stop that, but the societal implications of that, Mm -hmm. uh, are profound and we're, that's going to have to be a role of government to figure out how do we care for people? What's going to happen when there's gonna be millions of people out of work because of robotics and 3d printing. Mm-hmm. How do we respond? Mm-hmm. I don't have the answer to that, but it's in, it's on the horizon.
0: I mean, the people have to build the 3d printers. I think from a manufacturing aspect of building the machines, that's something that you could, help yeah, out totally. With. But like, you know, the number but of like, people
1: that it takes to build a 3D printer compared to the number of people that will be unemployed because of that exactly, 3D printer is minimal, it's a yeah. fraction,
0: yeah. So, um, something I found I find interesting I had somebody that has an has energy company on, uh, has an energy company, I had him on World Energy, um, and the guy I had on yesterday help or does community solar I don't know if you've heard of that yeah so what's your thoughts on community solar
1: and so let, let's be clear so it's basically where a group of people buy a solar farm essentially or finance a solar farm and get their um, energy from it
0: so the way he explained it is it's no cost to the customer it's all you know you just sign it up sign up for it, and and he'll and he'll help reduce your energy costs
1: if he, if he can reduce energy costs.
0: Yeah. And it's no cost to you.
1: I, I mean, if, if energy costs can be reduced, I think everyone should have the ability to purchase the energy mix that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to remember that a lot of the solar, um, the solar voltaic cells, there there's subsidies behind it. There's tax credits behind it. So in a way, you know, people are paying mm-hmm. a little bit more. We're all paying a little bit more. And I'm fine with that. Um, I'm I'm concerned about our energy costs. So if you want to do a community solar project God bless you, go for it. You can pay, you can buy your electricity from wherever you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- through our national grid, um, what we forced the national grid to do is buy a ton of renewable energy. Um, and we have some of the highest electricity costs in the country. I, I think we need to I-, I think we need to be careful. With this drive towards zero emissions, uh, we just passed a law this year that's called the Act on Climate, which requires the state to get 40% below 1990 emissions by 2030, 80% below 1990 emissions by 2040, and, 100, and excuse me, net zero by 2050. And it's a laudable goal, but there is, there is a cost to it, and we need to realize that. And one of my fears with the drive to zero admissions is that you have a lot of other countries that aren't doing it. And we're actually gonna subsidize economic investment in countries like China that have abysmal environmental records. So if you're, you know, you wanna, I wanna build a manufacturing plant and uh, because of the United States drive to net zero, the electricity costs are gonna be much, much more expensive. We have to acknowledge it's gonna be more expensive. Uh, you're gonna choose maybe to invest in China instead where they're putting stuff in the air and water that's far worse than the, the c- relatively clean carbon dioxide we're putting off here. Mm-hmm. We have, an, we have um, environmental regulations in this country that really require emissions to be clean absent carbon dioxide. Uh, I, I, we've set an example in this state, I think, by having renewable energy. Uh, we have the first wind farm. We have the second lowest per capita emissions in the country. And, Who's number one? Uh, I think Hawaii okay i think hawaii is they have a lot of um wind and solar Mm. you know just like where the the island is the islands are excuse Mm. me and also they kind of have to do it because them getting uh, refined fuel out there is tough you know like yeah yeah. to get the diesel out to hawaii um or even liquefied natural gas just the transportation costs are massive so i i what we need to do in the state i think we need to say we've set an example at what point do we stop spending money to stop climate change? You know, we're one 7,800th of the world's population, right? Imagine having $7,800 in your pocket. You pull out $1, that's Rhode Island, mm-hmm. 7.8 billion people. Um, this has to be solved through international agreements. It has to be solved with aggressive tariffs on polluter nations so we're not subsidized, subsidizing development in those polluter nations. And we need to stop taking our eye off other environmental issues in the state. Mm-hmm. You know, If climate change is coming, should we be spending money to prepare for it? Should we be spending money to harden our coastlines, to stop saltwater intrusion into our water supply? Um, in western Rhode Island, one of the effects of climate change is that we have uh, just massive amounts of dead forests with fuel on the ground and they're ready to burn like we had in the 40s. We had a massive fire in this state in the 40s which they had to declare state of emergency, destroyed air quality for a long time. We don't even maintain our fire roads anymore. We've cut DEM enforcement staff by over 50% since the early 2000s. So we've, I think rightfully and morally, have focused on climate change and and we've set a great example but we've taken our eye off a lot of other environmental issues. Mm -hmm. Another environmental issue is lead poisoning. Uh, We have extreme lead poisoning issues in our urban core. Mm -hmm. Kids are getting poisoned from the water. We have PFAS, which is an old industrial chemical, which has been found in our groundwater supplies from Cumberland down to Charlestown. We have real environmental issues that I feel the environmental movement has ignored in a drive to, to stop global climate change when Rhode Island measurably can have no real effect. Now, that's not to say that we're wrong to do that. I think we set a great example, and our country needs to deal with it. It has to be dealt with on a national and international level. If we're going to make any real difference stopping climate change, it has to be done through international agreements and tariffs on polluter nations. And until that happens, our drive to get to net zero, I think, is going to be economically ruinous.
0: So follow-up question number one. So don't you think the best steps to, be, to get to, you know, lowering our emissions is becoming energy independent in this country first uh compared to you know dependent on other countries
1: so i think just just from geopolitical for geopolitical reasons we should be energy independent um i think two or three years ago for the first time in the world we became the largest uh petroleum producing nation on earth Mm -hmm. that has ceased Um, And now we're asking, begging OPEC to pump more oil to reduce the the price of gas. So I I think we have to be energy independent as we make the transition. Now, what is energy independence? Some people believe it's tapping into our, our massive natural gas reserves in this country. Other people think it's wind and solar. Some people think it's nuclear. I personally think it's a combination of all of them. Mm-hmm. And as technology gets better, we can transition off of hydrocarbons.
0: So, weren't we energy independent a couple of years ago? Was that a thing, or am I just dreaming? And no, you're not. Dreaming. Okay, okay. We, we
1: became the we 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 passed Saudi Arabia as the largest petroleum producing nation okay. on earth. Okay. And that's largely due to our fracking revolution and the the national our natural gas reserves which are massive which fracking has opened up. Mm-hmm. Now fracking, I wouldn't want fracking going on by my house, so there has to be strict uh, environmental regulations and it has to be done in places where people aren't dependent upon a gra- groundwater supply. There's ways to do it properly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, why are we shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline? which President Biden did, and then begging Saudi Arabia to pump more oil to reduce our price of gas. It's insane. And then, that frankly, that oil has to be put on ships and driven across the ocean to get here. How much carbon dioxide does that release? Mm-hmm. Um, but we it, I think many of our environmental policies are are emotional reactionism, and I I'm concerned what's going on out there. I have a lot of friends who struggle, and when you're paying... 360 a gallon of gas you know it hurts poor people the most it Mm -hmm. hurts families and Mm -hmm. it's going on right now and it's going to be the winter of discontent I fear
0: well when I first got my car it cost like 20 bucks to fill it up like 20 to 24 dollars now it costs over 30 and I'm definitely feeling it you know but
1: I I was watching the Rittenhouse trial the other day and there was a lot of moments people have different opinions but the thing that struck me is when they had a video Of, I think it was called the ultimate gas station where a lot of fights were happening. I looked back and I saw the gas price from August of 2021, excuse Mm -hmm. me, August of 2020, and it was (laughs) $2.05. So, like, I think there's one thing in this trial everyone can agree on. It's like, we want that price back. Yeah. 205, it's gone up over 50%. Yeah.
0: So, kind of totally switching topics here, you talked about DEM and how they've drastically reduced funding for them. And yet, um, you know, like hunting licenses still are the same, fishing licenses, all those are the same costs. So where is that money going?
1: So we we out so that money still goes into restricted receipt accounts, you know, under I think it's called the Davis Magnum Act. There, there's a federal act, that escapes me that Those monies that come in from hunting licenses get matched, I think, three to one with federal money and it has to be used to build boat ramps, to maintain our management areas, et cetera. So the money Mm -hmm. that comes in from fishing and hunting licenses They're not playing around with it. It has to be used for enforcement staff that's directly related to that activity or to do infrastructure within our parks. But we have to remember that DEM isn't only funded by fishing and hunting licenses. It's also funded by the state's general revenues. And those state general revenues over the past 20 years, uh, there's much, many more hands out than there's cash available. And they find places to cut. Mm -hmm. And one of those places has been DEM.
0: Mm -hmm. And so...
1: When we, when we look at our environmental policy, okay, we're, we're mandating that the people of the state pay more money to buy renewable energy. I mean, you look at the, the deep water wind project off Block Island where I'm from. Over the 20-year life of that project, it's going to cost $500 million in above market energy costs. $500 million more for the electricity from those five windmills than we would have paid if it was just off traditional natural gas. So th- there's a real cost to the people of this state for uh, renewable energies. And if we're not able in this state to fund our Department of Environmental Management to go after polluters, but we're spending all this money on other things to stop climate change, w- we need to look at our priorities. And I fear that the environmental movement has been so monofocused on reducing carbon emissions that we've neglected other environmental issues that we can measurably impact. Mm-hmm. like. Why the hell don't we have an interne- interconnected system of bike lanes in this state with parking lots strategically placed? Like, why don't we have that? We're a tiny state.
0: Mm. It's crazy. I and bike. We have a lot of bike paths too, though.
1: Yeah, but they're not interconnected. Can yeah. you safely bike here to Providence? Can you <laughs> safely bike from Warwick to Providence? Two Absolutely of our major. Not. You can't. No. I, I bike all the time, and I'm, it scares the hell out of me riding a bike in Providence. Mm. Like, we should have that. Mm-hmm. But we we don't spend money on things that would actually, frankly, that would reduce carbon emissions because people wouldn't be driving as many cars. But we just don't focus on other environmental issues, which are really important. I mean, we've cut our DM enforcement staff by fifty percent since the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. How is that happening? How is that happening?
0: Yeah. Um, so something else I found I found interesting that you talked about is daylight savings. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, why do you want to change daylight savings?
1: Oh, I want to stop changing. I want to okay. stop. I want to stop falling back and springing forward. It's depressing when the sun sets at four thirty in December. Uh, there's plenty of uh, statistical evidence that shows when we set the clocks back, there's increased workplace injuries. There's higher rates of depression, and there's higher cardiovascular uh, trauma when people. Uh, there's like higher rates of heart attacks. Okay. All right. So I mean that's that's like the, the the evidence, but the more antidotal evidence is it stinks. Yeah. It stinks when it's dark at four thirty. Yeah. I don't really need it to be light in the morning. I actually prefer waking up when the sun hasn't risen yet. I think it's nice. The issue with this is that we cannot have kids walking to the school bus in the morning when it's dark out. Mm. We can't do it. So there's been a lot of other evidence uh, about maybe we're starting schools too early. You know, 7.30 sometimes we're starting schools and young kids' brains really aren't working and they lose that first hour, hour and a half. So I think in tandem with any look at stopping the falling back of our clocks every fall is that we should look at starting schools later. And I mean, Rhode Island can't do this alone. The reason I proposed that bill, I think back in 2015, is that Massachusetts had a study commission looking at this and the bill said, um, if Massachusetts changes its clocks, we would follow them, but I think Senator Whitehouse just came out and said that they were looking at uh, a law in Washington to stop the annual changing of the clocks. I support it, but you just can't do it in a vacuum. You have mm. to start schools later.
0: Yeah. Cool. Um, so obviously, it's a big election year next year for Rhode Island, new governor. Um, first of all, do you have any plans on running? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um no i we're we're looking at it it's a scary proposition yeah um it's not life-changing it's life-altering yeah um so i we haven't decided if we're gonna do it or not um yeah i really don't know i i don't see any candidate out out there frankly unfortunately that i think is a transformational candidate yeah and that's what the state needs well
0: i think right now matt brown threw his you know his ring in and then there's um there's a couple there's like a few that have people that have said that they want to, obviously Dan McKee. Yep, Dan McKee.
1: Um, you have, um, Helena folks who used to be the CEO of CVS. You have Seth magazine, our yes, current treasurer. The magaziner, yeah. and then you have Nellie Gourbet, our current secretary of state. And then you have Matt Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Matt Brown is transformational, but I think he's transformational in the wrong direction. You know, he's kind of, uh, of the Bernie Sanders socialist mindset. Um, he's good at po- pointing out problems in our state. Uh, his solutions, I think, will will be abhorrent and will hurt the people of the state. Mm. Uh, the other people who are running, it's just more insiders. Um, and I, I just don't see any of the candidates on the other side that have declared yet as someone who can do what needs to be done in the state, that has the guts to make the hard decisions and to take on the establishment, that has been largely sucking the wealth and productivity out of the, citizen, the citizens of the state for a long time. The state should shine.
0: Hmm. The
1: state should be shining. It should be amazing. We're between New York and Boston. We have absolute stunning beauty, great highways, interconnected train systems, deep water ports, defense sector, which is great. We're an open, conclusive society, wonderful universities. All the pieces are in play. Mm -hmm. This this state should be booming. Mm -hmm. But it's not booming because... Uh, if you do any work on trees, you know what in, like an invasive vine is, you have a beautiful tree and this vine crawls up it and has thousands of roots that dig into the tree and suck its life force away, and that's what I view Rhode Island government as. This could, this state could be beautiful, it could be rich. The biggest issue in this state when it comes to to civil rights is poverty. Poverty is the issue which we have to address, and we're not going to address it when we have a government that focuses on rewarding its buddies and not caring enough about the people who are struggling. So I don't see anyone on the other side who's really going to change things, and that makes me concerned, and that makes us look at running, but it's it's a really difficult personal proposition.
0: Awesome. So, you know, something I found very interesting is that you um, talked highly of Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah. Which I found, because obviously she's a Democrat, um, and I found that really interesting that you said that. She's um, awesome. Yeah.
1: She's awesome. I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm not a partisan. You know, When there's people on the other side of the aisle who, who stand up, speak out against the establishment, speak out about imperialist foreign policy, speak out about corruption, we have to show them respect. Um, I, I think she's awesome. She signed up to, uh, to the military after 9-11. I, I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's an incredible representative, former representative, and uh, she's a Democrat who I completely admire, and I'm not afraid to say that. Um, And I think we need to be able to stand up and look at people who are not in our political party and say they're good people and they're brave. And she clearly is. I like her better than a lot of Republican representatives. I mean, there's some really good ones and there's some ones who I think should have the same courage that Tulsi Gabbers has.
0: Very cool. Um, Yeah. I definitely think we need more of that as well. So now I have some questions from local people. From the listeners. Yes. And, um, you know, I'll say their name and, uh, I'll ask you their question. So Joe Vili, I don't know if you know who he is. I do know Joe. Great guy. Yeah, so I had him on the podcast. He wants to know what your views are on ranked voting.
1: So I actually, for the past five years, have introduced bills to support uh, a ranked choice voting system uh, for general officers and our uh, members of the General Assembly. Uh, We've had, I think, in 2010, Governor Chafee was elected with 36% 36% of the vote. 2014, Governor Raimondo was elected, I think, with a little over 40% of the vote. And uh, Attorney General Peter Kilmartin at the time was elected with, I think, 44, 46% of the vote. Um, it's wrong. We need to have a system where someone attains a majority um, because they don't have a mandate. You get a majority, you have a mandate. Governor Raimondo, in her second election, she got a majority. She had a mandate. What
0: do you mean by a mandate?
1: A mandate. like if A mandate from the people to Okay. Bother. Okay. A mandate from the people to govern. you got a majority. But when mm-hmm. we have people elected with 36% of the vote, it, it hurts their ability to govern, and it's not reflective of the will of the people. Yeah. So I, we have to change it.
0: So, I mean, ranked voting is, has already taken place in Maine. I'm pretty sure that they did that. That's how their current governor got
1: elected. And Alaska just got turned on, too, for the 2022. There was okay. a citizen petition. And it's used in major cities throughout the country. New York uses it. 20 major metropolitan areas use it. Um, it's used internationally. Uh, I know the mayor of London, the city of, I think, 8 million people uses it. Uh, it's used for certain, I think, House and Senate elections in India. There's a system of ranked choice voting, I believe, in Australia.
0: Do you think that there's any issues with ranked choice voting? And, and do you think that they can be improved upon?
1: So ballot confusion is the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, you have four people on the ballot, and you're like, what am I supposed to put in number one? But, you know, that that's what gets raised all the time. But I, I, I think voters are smart, more smart than we give them credit for. And people can figure out a system where, you know, there's a bubble. And you pick your first choice and your second choice. Everybody took choice. SATs, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah you it's know. just like bubbles like the SATs. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other issue is that like, are you going to get someone who didn't have the most first choices? It's someone who's just like you know, not the consensus, who's more of a consensus candidate and not like everyone's number one or majority of people's number one candidate. Um, so the other way to look at it is a system of uh, a jungle primary, which is being talked about right now. And that's what they do in Louisiana and Georgia, where in the November election, you have everybody in. And then the people who get the most, uh, the two top vote getters go to a runoff in um, in December. Okay. That's assuming no one gets a majority in that first ballot.
0: Okay. Very interesting. So um, Dave Massey, who actually lives right down the road from here. Hey, Dave. Yeah. Um, he... Uh, Was vastly affected from gypsy moths uh, when we had all those things all over the place. He wants to know if there's any uh, plans to help uh, assist homeowners through financing to help tree removal and things like that. No, there's there's
1: there's no programs. There's a program I think uh, Arbor Day where we the the DEM gives out free trees. Uh, I would recommend you do that, but there's no there's no money in the budget to. To help people who have been affected by gypsy moths. I'm sorry I've been affected by it too. It's Mm -hmm. nasty. It's one of the reasons why our entire western part of the state is ready to go up in flames Mm -hmm. uh, because of the gypsy moth moth infestation. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry. Sorry, David. And Listen, I don't rate the budget either. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I vote vote against the budget usually. Okay. No, there's no programs.
0: So uh, Stephanie Potts. She, uh, so for those of you who don't aren't familiar with her, uh, the Maddie Potts Foundation. Her daughter passed away in two thousand and seventeen uh, from a brain aneurysm. Very tragic. Um, I don't personally know her, but I know who she was at the high school, um, and I know her dad, Mister Potts, and I've gotten to know them through donating through my company and things like that. Um, but the Maddie Potts Foundation, fantastic organization, helping fund sports for Cheroke and uh, really puts a, a push on uh, you know, hard work, uh, compassion, kindness and, and inclusive leadership uh, and Stephanie wants to know uh, if there are any local, or state, uh, local, state or corporate grants that can help fund uh, the field house that they're building due to building costs going up in the recent year, uh, which has sort of set them back.
1: So I, I'll look into it. I want to say that the way the community has rallied around the Potts family and Maddie's legacy is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And... I'm sorry. It's okay. This phone started ringing. Um, it's beautiful. And we all need to support it if there isn't government and money available. Um, but... I will research it and reach out to Miss Potts if you have her have her contact info. Okay, I, I'll dig in. There's there's grants. There's tons of different grants in state government. I don't know if any of them are applicable. We have a research yeah. team who will dig in and find out. Yeah. Um. But if there are no grants available, then let me know. Let me know when the fundraiser is.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, and and I just got to say another thing about the Maddie Potts uh, Foundation is, um, I played baseball and you know I was sort of within. You know, the Cherahoe ring of things, and I was never, you know, a popular person, but after high school, I started getting involved with the Matty Potts Foundation, and uh, it really helped the community feel like a family again. You know, everybody's in it together, and uh, it helped bring the local area together. Yeah. So, um, the the I guess that's it for my questions, but the la- I, I have one more question for you. I ask everybody this before we end the podcast. Uh, If you could leave one piece of advice to the listener, what would it be? It could be life, politics, business, anything.
1: I would say take risks in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whenever I speak with older people, I ask them, do you have any advice for me? And nine times out of ten, they say you have to take risks. You have to take risks. It's not taking risks that they regret when they're elderly. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, the advice that always has stuck with me whenever I ask for it.
0: Of course, of course. So Measured risks. Yeah, measured, risk. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> measured, everything, measured everything risks. Exactly. Everything is relative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Measured risks. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate you coming out today. I think I had a great conversation. Um, Thank you, Max. Yeah. And uh, I know you're busy. So, you know, I, I appreciate everybody that comes on this podcast. And uh, yeah, so thanks for coming on. Uh, and make sure, guys, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Uh, if you're on Spotify, take a screenshot and uh, tag me on Instagram and put it on your story. Uh, We might have some uh, contests coming up to win some cool items to particular local businesses. And uh, I think that'd be pretty cool. So thanks, guys, for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one.